0: Hey friends, this is Ashley coming to you before this episode starts. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a newsletter. It's also called Boss Barista and you can find all of our episodes along with full transcripts and articles about each episode at the newsletter. So go to bossbarista.substack.com and all of this stuff will just end up in your email. It's kind of like magic. So again, bossbarista.substack.com to find all of these episodes along with additional content. Thanks for listening and on to the show. Hey friends, welcome to Boss Barista, the podcast about workplace equity and employee empowerment in coffee and beyond. I'm Ashley Rodriguez. In April of 2020, I had Adam Jackson Bay on the show. He came on to talk about tipping and his new organization called GoFundBean. It's a play on the crowdfunding website GoFundMe, which at the time served as a nexus for the plethora of virtual tip jars started by employees of coffee shops and restaurants who had to close their doors due to the pandemic. The virtual tip jars were a way to offset some of the losses many service workers faced, and GoFundBean served as a central hub for folks to look and see what virtual tip jars were in their area. It was a pretty straightforward and ingenious idea. Fast forward 2 years, which barely feels like a fast forward at all, and GoFundMe does so much more. As an official 501c3 nonprofit, they advocate for hourly coffee workers through grant programs, mentorship matching, and professional development courses. Today, I'm speaking with Valerie Clark a historian, member of GoFundMe's leadership team, and a catalyst for many of the programs that GoFundMe now offers. Over the last 2 years, Valerie has personally witnessed how necessary it is to advocate for hourly workers. Back when COVID-19 was supposed to be controlled by a 2-week quarantine, many employers still laid off their workers without notice. Many don't pay a living wage. And many still see their employees as disposable. Going back to the tip jars, one of the key observations that Valerie and the team at GoFundMe noticed is that people didn't make these tip jars on their own. They didn't make individual tip funds, but instead worked together with their colleagues and coworkers to pool resources. Going back to the tip jars, one of the key observations that Valerie and the team at GoFundMe noticed is that people didn't make their own tip jars. They didn't make individual tip funds that people could contribute to, but instead worked together with their colleagues and coworkers to pool resources. I think that mimics what we've witnessed over the last two years in terms of labor folks recognizing the power of collective action and working together to secure better outcomes for all. It's in this spirit that GoFundMe continues its advocacy work throughout coffee and the service industry at large. Here's Valerie. Valerie, I was hoping you could start by introducing yourself.
1: Hey guys, I'm Valerie Clark. I'm the director of marketing for GoFundMe. Valerie, did you grow up with coffee in your life? Um, a little bit. You know, my parents drank coffee. I was given like my first cup of coffee when I was like five. But of course, it was more like a cup of milk with like a splash of coffee in it.
0: Were you ever intrigued by it? Like, did you see adults in your life drinking coffee and think, I want that?
1: No, I loved
0: the t- the smell of it, though. So then when did you start getting into coffee?
1: I think when I was in college and was like having to stay up really late to write essays because I'm a-, a terrible procrastinator. So Um, I wouldn't start writing a paper until like 11 p.m. or something. And uh, that was when I started drinking coffee.
0: At what point for you did it become something more than just a thing you were drinking?
1: I think probably like when I was a junior in college, somehow most of my friends had become the baristas at the coffee shop that I was like a a regular at. And I think that was when the first kind of, like, inklings of, like, coffee is more than a drink. Coffee is a community. Like, that's kind of when those first inklings started for me. And then when did you start working in coffee? About six months after I graduated from college. I had been working in politics in D.C. and hated it and was like, I have to. I, like, I just quit. Like, one day I was like, I just have to get out of this. A coffee shop in D.C. for some reason hired me to be their morning barista. I like that for some reason. I'm like, not. I'm truly like looking back. I'm like, who made this choice? <laughs> like who decided this is a good idea? Why do you think that? I think because I just had absolutely zero experience and it was like a busy shop in Chinatown. There were tons of like politicians that came into that shop. And I was like, whose idea was it to put this like completely green person here at like 6 a.m. giving politicians coffee? Like whose idea was that? I hope that you can trace back
0: some really important political decisions to your, specifically your service of these politicians in that (laughs) coffee shop.
1: I I can't off the top of my head. But Dennis Kucinich came in a lot and he always got like a dark chocolate sorbet to go with his coffee. And I will never forget that as long as I live. (laughs)
0: I love that. So at what point did it go from, okay, this is a job I have. I'm serving people, important politicians, coffee at six in the morning to, oh, this is a job I like. What does it look like to maybe take this more seriously?
1: Pretty quickly, actually, because so I started working there in early summer of 2012 and it was by winter. I was like training to become a trainer at that that like location. So that it was by fall that I was already like, oh, this could be a future for me. And I think A lot of that, like a large part of that realization was that that shop was a counterculture account. And so we had access to all the counterculture classes and the owners were huge perfectionists. They like really wanted us to be serving the best possible coffee. And so we got paid to go to like every single counterculture class if we wanted to go. Just as I like learned more and more about coffee from the guys at counterculture, I was like, oh, this this isn't just like a thing that I'm doing for now. Like this could be a career.
0: I love that. I love that the investment in your education and being like, oh, we're going to pay you to go to these classes, almost turn that light switch on for you. Uh, This can be something more. And it seems to be as simple as the people above you saying, hey, we take this seriously. This is the avenue in which you can take this seriously as well.
1: You know, Adam and I, who um, founded GoFundMe, and Adam and I met at that coffee shop. And, you know, we always talk about how it wasn't the healthiest work environment, like it was super toxic in a lot of ways, but they were really, really invested in us, like knowing everything we could, which was cool looking back.
0: Yeah, I love looking back on those moments. And I think you can rectify, you not necessarily rectify, but you can both can exist. It can be toxic, but at the same time, you could recognize where this contributed to the future of your career. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned GoFundMe a couple of times, but for people who maybe don't know what that is, could you explain a little bit about that organization?
1: Sure. We are a nonprofit that supports, uplifts, and defends hourly coffee workers in the U.S. So what that means is that we were founded during the pandemic to give grants to hourly coffee workers who had been laid off from their jobs because of COVID and since then have grown into doing other things. Like we gave grants after Hurricane Ida, to kind of help people in New Orleans who had been put out of work by having to evacuate. But the the core of our mission has always been like making sure that hourly coffee workers are like taken care of and have, have a way to like move forward in their careers if that's what they want to do. Tell me about how GoFundMe was founded because
0: you mentioned that it was born out of the pandemic, which I don't think is a big stretch for people to realize that when the pandemic hit, coffee shops were severely affected. So what was that first conversation like between, I imagine between you and Adam Jackson Bay, who's the co-founder of this organization?
1: Mm -hmm. So the pandemic kind of, everything started shutting down mid-March 2020, right? Mm -hmm. And I think by about May, it was something like eighty percent of coffee like employees in the U.S. had been laid off. Like it was some crazy huge percentage, you know. In mid March, whenever places started to shut down and then eventually quickly lay off their um, their employees, you know. Adam and I were talking, and also Jen Chen was a part of the conversation, um, and she's now on the board. And then Bailey Arnold was also helping us out back then. Um, but we started talking, being like, we should have like a central location for all of these tip jars that are going up. Because what was really fascinating that was happening was that entire cafe staffs were making tip jars together. Um, And sometimes it was the boss making it and like putting it up on the website. And sometimes it was um, kind of them coming together and like using their social media to say, Hey, we're raising money for all of us. Um, Which was cool because I think, it could have so easily gone a different way of people being very individualistic about it, but it was a very collective moment of we're all in trouble. We're all hurting. We're all raising money. Um, and so Adam was like had this idea to to like have a centralized location for all of those tip jars instead of like everyone trying to fight the algorithm and get their tip jar out there. We wanted to like kind of centralize it. So we created like an Instagram and Twitter first, and we were just post like reposting people's tip jars so that they could get a little bit more attention and kind of have become a centralized place when we started the website, gofundbean.org. And same thing, we were posting the tip jars there with like links and information. Yeah, just grew from there.
0: I never thought of the tip jars that way. So taking a step backwards, the pandemic happens, an uncountable amount of baristas lost their jobs because places shut down, people had nowhere to go. And as you mentioned, instead of approaching things in an individualistic way, like one person saying, hey, I lost my job, here's my Venmo, or my GoFundMe. I'm realizing now that GoFundMe and GoFundMe (laughs) are very similar, which I know, but in my brain, I'm like, I have to choose one. Uh, (laughs) So, But individuals starting GoFundMes for themselves But instead, what you folks were observing, and it seems like you were very conscious of, is that people were coming together as collectives, as like, we are the staff of XYZ Coffee Shop. Let's all pull our resources together. And it seems like that idea of collectivity inspired you to even go a step further and say, hey, maybe somebody who lives in, let's say, New Orleans, I'll pick a city, Maybe someone in New Orleans wants to support their local coffee community, but they don't know where the tip jars are. GoFundMe's Instagram account almost served as a platform for them to just go to one place and say, what's in my community or what's a tip jar I'd like to support? Here it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when we had all the tip jars on the website, you could sort by city, actually. So we actually had a lot of people go onto our website and use like the sort to say, I want to give money to baristas in Philadelphia or New Orleans. And donate money that way and like just click through to every tip jar in in Philly.
0: Were you surprised by how people responded to GoFundMe when you first started? Did you see a lot of people going to the website and, and like you said, using those sorting resources or saying like, oh, this is a resource that I can use to support my community? I didn't know about this. This is great. Like what was the response initially when you started the website and the Instagram account?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was so funny because I think, you know, you probably have dealt with this is that a lot of people don't give feedback. So it was like, (laughs) we only knew that people were doing it because we could see spikes in website traffic. No one was like messaging us being like, this is so cool. I just donated to every barista in New Orleans. Like no one was saying that. We did get like specific coffee people coming to us and being like, oh, this is really cool. Thank you for doing this. Like, it's really amazing that you're doing this. We only knew because like, people would post on their own individual Instagrams be like, oh my God, someone donated like a hundred dollars to our tip jar today. Thank you guys so much. And then we would be able to like look on our website and be like, oh, I think that per- that traffic came from us because like of this spike in our website traffic the same day.
0: That's funny. I a hundred percent know what you mean by, <laughs> by not getting feedback on things, but then seeing somebody talk about someone, you're like, oh, okay. I, yeah. I, I guess, I guess that was impactful for you. Um, I guess this worked. I guess this worked. So then like what, like how would you then measure things? You said that you looked at at spikes in website traffic, but like how did you know that your, like your impact was I guess making an impact?
1: We would get messages from the people whose tip jars we posted and they would sometimes like thank us and be like, thank, like, thank you for posting this. Like we saw a lot more tips come in this week or something. But also it was like a lot of like, I was locked inside my house as was everybody else. And just like, I was just like going through Barista's Instagrams and like watching their stories and like seeing them like either reposting our tip jar or like, you know, or people who I knew who like worked in coffee but weren't Barista's like posting about GoFundMe and like telling their followers to check us out. That was kind of how we were measuring impact back then.
0: At what point did you folks decide that you wanted to do more? Because it, initially it seems like this was like a temporary measure, right? Like, okay, the pandemic's happening. We had no idea at that time how long it was going to last. I think there was still talk at that time of, oh, we'll shut down for two weeks and we'll be back up and running, which obviously hasn't happened. We're two years in, we're still here.
1: Exactly. But
0: at what point did you realize that this could be something more permanent or that you wanted to do more?
1: It was when actually Melita came to us and was like, hey, we want to partner with you guys to like sell they were like because like you know melita chemex all these companies that sell home coffee brewing equipment like at retail they were making money hand over fist during early in the pandemic because people were like learning to make coffee at home um and so they were like we want to use some of these extra profits that we're making that is directly we're making directly because baristas are not making money because coffee shops are closed they came to us and they were like we want to partner with you guys to sell, like, a certain brewer or something, and they the, like, like the profits from that will go toward tip jars. And, like, we'll give you guys the money, and you guys can decide, like, which tip jars to put them in or something. And that was, like, the beginning of the grant program. And so what ended up happening was, like, for three months, we were, like, kind of promoting this with Melita and working with them. And then kind of in the middle of the process, they were like, oh, we really like need you guys to be a 501c3 nonprofit for us to give you a bunch of money, which was like, yeah, we totally that totally makes sense. And so I think that was probably in like maybe May of that that year. So we got a board together. Adam mostly got a board together. Um, started applying for 501c3 status, um, which we got like kind of later on in 2020. And just kind of like through that process we're realizing that like there was so much more we could do with this sort of like brain trust that Adam had assembled. Like the people on our board are all people who care very deeply about hourly coffee workers. They've all been baristas and like worked in the industry for like, I think we like together combined, we have like 80 years of experience in coffee or something. Like it's a lot of time that we've all been in this industry and like we all love it so much. And that was kind of like as we were talking and like assembling this and like becoming a five hundred and one c three and like realizing we could do this like whole grant program with this money that Melita was giving us, and then J and P got on board too, and then like you know just donations started kind of pouring in as we started saying like hey this is kind of our next step. That was I think when we realized really like, oh we have something cool on our hands here that we could do a lot with. So you've
0: talked about hourly coffee workers a fair amount, and you've talked like you say it as a phrase, hourly coffee workers. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the struggles that hourly coffee workers face, which we saw very clearly illustrated in the pandemic, right? Like they were the first people laid off. They're the people who can't do their jobs at home. Like what what other issues were you seeing hourly coffee workers facing that you thought, oh, okay, we at GoFundMe can tackle this or we at GoFundMe can at least offer support in a way that's meaningful and impactful?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I say early coffee workers, you know, we're referring mostly, I think, to baristas, but there are plenty of people who work in coffee who are paid by the hour who are not baristas or or who were baristas but aren't anymore. And so that was that's kind of the inception of like that phrase. And it's been really cool to start seeing people start using it because I, I remember when we came up with it. Not to say that like no one had ever put those three words together, but when we kind of consciously decided that we weren't gonna say that we were an organization for baristas, we were an organization for hourly coffee workers. Since then it's like I've seen like a spike of people using that phrase, which has been really fun. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important because it's like it's much more inclusive and like like addresses more of the industry as a whole. Well, what I love about the phrase hourly coffee
0: workers is like you said, it includes people who aren't just baristas, who are Delivery drivers, who are a lot of roasters, are hourly coffee workers, anybody who works in production. So the people who maybe aren't roasting your coffee but are putting it in bags and making sure that it gets to you, like almost all of those people are hourly coffee workers. Mm -hmm. And it seems like as GoFundMe evolved, you were able to start identifying specific struggles that hourly coffee workers face. So I was wondering if you could talk about some of those struggles, because I also imagine like think about the fact that maybe people in the restaurant industry are listening to this or people in the service industry at large. They probably face a lot of those same issues as well. So like how did GoFundMe bring light to some of the issues that hourly coffee workers face?
1: Hourly coffee workers are some of like the most vulnerable employees. And that's true, like of hourly hourly wage earners sort of across the United States are some of the most vulnerable people in like kind of the u.s economy or in like a u.s society writ large because like you know a lot of states that are have like at will employment like it can be very precarious to try to like speak up especially when you are working a minimum wage job or just above minimum wage and you don't have the ability to save money like you don't have a safety net um and we as like our government doesn't have a safety net for like US-based workers, really. And I think we saw a lot of that in the pandemic. We, you know, like there was like the extra $600, but, you know, there was no safety net for the people who lost their health insurance because they lost their jobs. And that, I mean, that just the the vulnerability of workers has been kind of made more and more clear to us every day. Yeah, I think just in conversation with hourly coffee workers, just the the things that they... And and I say they, but I really I mean we because like I was I was a barista up until like last March. The 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 issues that they face is it's 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 like they compound on one another. It's one thing after the next. Like they don't have the money. They like don't earn enough money to save. So then when things like their car, you know, like they get a flat tire or something, like that has to go on a credit card, which then like has to like incur a bunch of fees and like interest and. At the same time they also that's stressful and they don't have like a safety net for dealing with that stress like through because probably they don't get good health care insurance um or good health insurance through their job and so they don't get mental health care probably and so you know like it's just like every problem that like coffee workers face it seems like compounds on one another um and that has been something that like as we address one issue we find ourselves being like okay but like there's five other issues tying into this only like, how do we address them all
0: i think what really caught me during the pandemic during the early days of the pandemic was how quickly so many employers let go of baristas mm-hmm. i was wondering if you were at all struck by by this because i know that for some for some baristas they were considered essential workers so some people had to go to work regardless of how safe they felt or not Mm-hmm. But I also know of baristas who I think I was in Chicago when when the pandemic started. I think Chicago went into lockdown on March thirteenth. I know people lost their jobs March fourteenth
1: yep, yeah. um the the speed at which people were like happy to lay off their employees, like it was like, I mean, you have that shirt that says like, we're not a family. Like that I was like, oh, that has never been more clear to me than in this moment when you were so quick to abandon your staff. Um, and like, I understand, like I tried to open a coffee shop. I understand that like margins are really tight. Like I, you probably don't have a month's worth of pay, like in the bank that you can just like give to your workers. Like I get that, like that is a very big reality in coffee. And that's something that we as an industry need to start dealing with and addressing because if nothing else, if we, if we get nothing, if coffee shop owners get nothing else out of this whole pandemic, or at least the early part of the pandemic, the idea that you should also, that businesses should also have like three months of savings in the bank should have been like occurring to people at some point during this. And I don't think it was. Um, But yeah, like I definitely knew people who got laid off truly the next day, Um, which was crazy to me because it was like, we don't even know. We don't know how long this is going to last. Like, can't you just furlough people? Like, can you just keep people on staff for like a week or two just to see what happens next? I was very fortunate at the beginning of the pandemic because I was actually working in a museum. And so that museum kept us on staff until almost May. Um, and then it, when it finally became clear that this was not going away and that they weren't reopening the museum anytime soon, that's when they laid us off. I was like personally offended, I think, to see how quickly some hourly coffee workers were laid off.
0: I mean, so was I. Like I'd see people posting left and right about being let go from their jobs. And there's a certain cadence to the way that people talked about these layoffs where I'm like, your employer did not have a nice conversation with you. Like your employer did not say to you, I am so sorry. This is just where we're at because you're right. Like a lot of coffee shops just don't make money. And that's like also a fact of life too. Mm-hmm. Don't open a coffee shop if you think you're going to make money because it's not going to work. No, no, it's not a
1: get rich quick scheme.
0: It's not a get rich quick scheme. We're here. The hot, hot take here. But hearing people talk about how they were let go from their jobs so quickly and into the pandemic without any sort of promise of like, we're going to do everything we can to keep you. We're going to do our best to like, give you what you need to bring you back. Like, please don't, please don't go anywhere. Like, what can we do to support you? Can we start a tip jar for you? Which I was surprised. I don't know if you, if you've noticed this too. A lot of the tip jars were started by baristas, not necessarily by employers. Some were with respect to people who did start them for their, for their employees, but like it seems like the pandemic gave people a lot of excuses to just say, like, we don't have to care about you anymore.
1: Yeah. Which was really, I mean, astounding and infuriating because it was like, oh, you guys are the same people who've been saying, like, we're a family and that's why we don't pay as well. And that's why we, like, but we take care of each other. And I'm like, where's that attitude now?
0: Right. And right. And we're seeing that now play out in like the Starbucks union as well, where. Starbucks wants to retain control and not have people unionized because they want this freedom to say like, look at us, we can solve our problems all together. But on the other, on the flip side, we've seen people say like, oh, cool, we don't have any money to pay you, like, see you later, never mind, goodbye. So, and and, and I think this speaks to the bigger issue of like what GoFundMe represents is that like nobody is speaking up for low wage workers, not our government, not the people that are supposed to be taking care of these. Low-wage baristas or low-wage coffee workers. Excuse me, we've learned this term. We're going to use it. Uh, but nobody, but nobody is speaking up or advocating for them. And it seems like GoFundMe has really found its voice as it's recognized that like nobody is speaking up for low-wage workers. Nobody is speaking up for hourly coffee workers who don't have a lot of recourse when their boss does something crappy or like they get laid off from a job, like like, when do you think that that moment, like, really crystallized for you? Like, this is so necessary. Because I have to imagine that, like, as you've been doing this work, like, maybe some of this has always been intuitive for you. But I have to imagine the last two years have also, like, fundamentally changed you, too.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always was sort of aware of kind of, like, the inherent crappiness in the way that a lot of service workers in general are treated and like the way that we're treated as disposable specifically. Like a lot of people walk into a coffee shop and treat the baristas as just as disposable as the cups in there. It's really upsetting, but it was like seeing that come from bosses as well. Like, like I knew it because I'd had bad bosses who treated me that way. But seeing that it was, like, industry-wide and not that I had just had, like, bad luck with bosses, I was like, oh, this is – no one cares about us, actually. like I think
0: what you're saying and I think what I I, I really want people to understand is that I think before the pandemic, and I think you're speaking to this a little bit, it would have been easy to say that's a bad employer or that's, like, a shitty boss or, like, that person is so-and-so and and just kind of leave it at that and just say, like – this is a bad employer. We're not going to work for them or we're going to like let other people know that this person's like a shady boss and kind of it's like the one bad apple argument. Mm-hmm. But I think what GoFundMe is doing on the on the positive end is acknowledging that like there are systems in place that actively hurt hourly coffee workers. Mm-hmm. And we are here to say that these things are not okay and we are going to give them as many resources as we can.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's a big part of like uh like our whole thing has been like uncovering just how like almost systemic it is like in the industry to assume I mean especially I think that like a large part of it comes from assuming that it's a low skill job. And in a lot of it is like coffee shops are often owned by people who were never baristas. Not always, like there's some shining examples. And those were also, I think, the shops that were doing kind of the most for their workers during kind of the early days of the pandemic. I'm thinking of places like Mammoth uh, Mammoth Espresso in New Orleans, like Jonathan Reethmeyer was a, he was a barista for a long time and then opened his own shop. And like, he treated his employees really well during the pandemic. I was seeing that being like, this is like an example of what this industry could be if people just tried and cared. Yeah, there was definitely like this kind of moment, though, of realizing that like, oh, but that's not the standard. That's the exception. What he's doing is not the rule. And there needs to be someone, someone needs to be in place to advocate for baristas and for other hourly coffee workers in a way that has not existed before.
0: I want to pivot a little bit and talk about GoFundMe as an organization itself. This is the part I love getting meta. On these, on these conversations, so this is the part where we get really meta. Um, but thinking about how much you folks have accomplished in the last two years, you went from essentially starting an Instagram account to be like, let's collect all of these tip jars to a 501c3 that has multiple programming options, gives out grants to coffee workers, has mentor pairing programs, works with multiple coffee organizations to distribute funds. I mean, the, 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 the big question I want to ask is like, how would you get it all done in two years? But um, I, I mean, can you even answer that question? Because I think it's kind of a really hopeful story for baristas or for hourly coffee workers in general who are like, how do I start something? And it's like, look to GoFundMe. And even if you don't want to start a nonprofit exactly, like look how much they've built in two years.
1: Yeah, uh, we have done so much in two years and it's actually it's crazy um, because a lot of us had never met in real life before this. Like Adam knew everybody personally to think that we've done so much in two years without with barely coming together as like strangers is like so insane to me. And I just like point out that that was also part of this was like we were all getting to know each other and just trusting that each person on the board Wanted the best for each other for GoFundMe for hourly coffee workers and that was like it's kind of amazing to like consider that in terms of like how we got so much done in two years I think it was like a lot of like trusting each other trusting the process but also like we are a working board like Adam and I work the most but um you know Morgan who was our accountant. And they did a ton of work to make sure that like people were getting their grants on time. You know, like every single person on the board has stepped up and done, like given a lot of time and a lot of hours to GoFundMe over the years. Um, I mean, in a literal sense, that's how we got so much done. Um, but I also think like when Adam picked the people he picked for the board, the I think the best thing he did was pick people that both inspired him, but also that he trusted. A, it's really hard to do stuff alone and B, like, when you do something with other people, you got to do it with people who you both are inspired by and also trust. Because otherwise it's, it's so hard to start something new, which like sounds like the biggest, like no shit kind of statement in the world. But like, it's hard. It's hard to start a new thing and doing it with people that you trust and respect and are are inspired by is, is going to be a huge help for you along the way. I think that,
0: people listening to this, I hope people listening to this feel like it's possible for them. You know what I mean? That people feel like, I don't know if I want to start that coffee shop or I don't know if I want to start that roasting business. I don't know if it's possible. Mm-hmm. But I hope that they look to GoFundMe and think, oh, it is possible. I can do this. And maybe maybe it doesn't look exactly the way that I thought it would. I imagine that you guys didn't think that GoFundMe would ever look the way it does now.
1: <laughs> nope.
0: But it can it can happen. Like, what would you say to people who maybe are struggling with that first step of making something real and actualized?
1: I would say, don't be afraid to pivot. So when Adam, the Adam's idea, the phrase GoFundMe occurred to Adam in like 2018 or 19. And when he first started the idea, if I remember correctly, and maybe Adam is somewhere tearing his hair out hearing this, I believe the idea was actually originally to do fundraising for like specifically for competitors to compete individual, like independently so that they didn't have to rely on sponsorship because um, that can be a very stressful kind of added pressure to what is already difficult about USBCs, right? Right. So um, we're talking
0: about barista competitions, right? Just for people who don't oh, know.
1: Yeah, sorry. Yeah, for barista competition. So I believe the phrase came from that, but then Adam kind of just didn't do anything with it. Um, and then, you know, a year later, this pandemic hit and he was like, Oh, what if I, he was like, I already owned the Instagram. What if I pivot that idea into doing this? And so he was like texting me and like Jen Chen about it. And we were both like, yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great use of that phrase. You should, we should all do this. We'll help you blah, blah, blah. Um, so, and then I was actually, when we were at expo, um, we were talking to the people at Oatley and they asked a similar question. They were like, you know, just like at every turn, like you have found ways to meet needs that you didn't even know were there. And I kind of jokingly told them, I was like, yeah, we're just pivoting our way to the top. And I said it as a joke and then I was like, oh, but that's really true, though. Like we and like you can't be afraid to pivot to what is working and what is and pivot away from what is not like a big pivot we made was we really wanted to offer free mental health care. We did it through Talkspace at first, it didn't work. It just didn't work. And so we took six months off of that program so that we could figure out a better way to retool it. And then we pivoted and now like it's, it's much more stressful for us, but it works so much better for the hourly coffee workers that are benefiting from it that it's completely worth it. I mean, pivoting is key in I think probably any business, but yeah, like don't be afraid. Like it, it probably won't look the way that you think it will today, like five years from now, whatever it is that you wanna do, won't look the same. But I think you'll find your like you'll find what works for you and your business or you and your idea by like following your intuition and pivoting to where you're needed.
0: So I had Adam on the show maybe a couple of months after the pandemic. We talked a little bit about tipping culture and a little bit about GoFundMe. And one of the things that was like kind of a somber topic was creating an organization whose ultimate end goal in a perfect world where all problems are solved is that the organization no longer exists or no is lo- is no longer needed. Mm-hmm. So like, how do you as a person who is now kind of shifting to GoFundMe being like your main job, how do you kind of think about your role in pushing an organization forward with kind of that ultimate goal in mind?
1: We look a lot at other organizations like other nonprofits that have been around for decades and actively hope that that isn't us. I, I really hope GoFundMe doesn't exist five years from now. And I say that knowing that, like, I love this organization. and I love the work that we do. But I hope that five years from now or 10 years from now or whatever it is, that I hope that, like, there's a living wage in place in America where people don't need to rely on emergency relief grants so that they can get through something like a car problem or I don't know, being robbed or something like it. We actively just don't want to exist anymore, which is crazy to say, but I think the way we keep working forward is like knowing that like, until the moment that everything is perfect, we still have a role and we still have like a, almost like a responsibility to take care of people in any way that we can. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard to like, want to push it forward and like create new programs and also at the same time be like it's insane that we and it's something that we talk about we're like it's insane that we have to do this it's insane that this isn't something that doesn't or that like certain things don't already exist we feel like we're inventing the wheel sometimes and it's it can be frustrating but it's also like can be really rewarding to like watch people around us be like see what gofundbean's doing and be like oh yeah like that should have already existed or like oh yeah that you're right like that is a thing that we need to change um which has been very yeah that's like very rewarding but yeah it is it's weird trying to push an organization forward when you also kind of hope that you work it out like we hope that we work toward a world where we're not needed
0: for folks who are listening who think oh I want to support my hourly coffee workers. What what steps can they take like right now, like listening to this, they close their podcast app or whatever or they're reading the transcript of this episode and they put it on their phone or their computer. What can they do right now?
1: If you have disposable income, you can donate um to GoFundMe on our website. We, you know, all of our donations go toward our programs like disaster relief or emergency relief grants or uh, like our mentorship program so like you know we we early in we established like an 80 20 rule um so like 80% of your donation automatically is applied to programming and 20% goes to overhead that's one thing you can do if you have a disposable income if you are employing coffee workers you could maybe look into getting better health insurance for them if you employ hourly coffee workers you could look at what a living wage is in your city and determine what it would take for you to actually pay your your employees a living wage um, every person that makes a living wage is one less person that has to rely on outside help yeah and if you are neither of those people if you're not a shop owner and if you're not a uh, if you don't have a disposable income you can just follow us on Instagram and share our message it's uh, that helps too Valerie thank
0: you for taking the time to talk with me I really appreciate it
1: oh my gosh yeah this was so fun thank you
0: that was Valerie Clark of GoFundBean As you probably just heard, Valerie listed a number of ways that you can support the work that they're doing at GoFundBean. And you can check out what they're working on right now, keep up with what they're doing by going to their website, gofundbean.org, or you can follow them on Instagram at GoFundBean. But I'm going to take a second to plug Valerie's podcast. She hosts a show, it's called Unruly Figures, and it's a podcast, publication, and celebration. Of history's biggest rule breakers. You can find out more by going to Instagram at unrulyfigures, or you can go to Valerie's Substack, uh, a platform I'm very familiar with, at unrulyfigures.substack.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.
1: I'm just looking for a better day. Boss
0: Barista is produced by me, Ashley Rodriguez. You can find a transcription of this episode on my newsletter, along with an accompanying article about this episode, every Thursday at bossbarista.substack.com. To support the show, you can visit www.patreon.com/bossbarista. We have over eighty patrons supporting the show right now, which is incredible, and that helps keep the show alive. We pay guests through this fund. We pay for website hosting. And we make donations. Half of our patron donations are currently pledged to five different nonprofits, each at $50 a month. Asada's Daughters, the Loveland Foundation, the Native American Rights Fund, the Grocery Run Club, and the Chicago Community Bond Fund. Again, if you want to support Boss Barista, consider making a monthly donation at www.patreon.com bossbarista boss barista. Another amazing way to support the show is to share this episode with just one person, a friend, someone who you think would learn something from this episode, anybody. Sharing on social media is also a huge help, along with giving us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. As a small production, these things matter a lot. So if you can take a little time, share out some of your favorite quotes from this episode, and tag us. That would be great amazing we're at boss barista podcast on instagram and boss underscore barista on twitter you can also send me an email at boss at gmail.com thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week